I invite you to be opening your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. We'll <clears throat> come to that passage in several minutes, but you can go ahead and have your Bible there. This fall, as you know, not only have I been preaching on the Reformation, but um, <clears throat> Christians around the planet have been commemorating the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And to this point, I've done a lot of preaching on key doctrines that are associated with the Reformation that are really important for us today, all about salvation, that salvation is through grace alone. Remember this, by faith alone in Jesus alone. Do you remember that? Can you say that with me again? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Don't ever think those truths, those biblical truths and biblical doctrines don't matter. They do because heaven and hell, people's eternity hang in the balance on those biblical truths. We've talked about the, important, uh, the importance of, of holiness compared to corruption. We've talked about religious liberty and the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, the authority of God's Word. Today I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about some personal qualities. They're, they're, they're biblical, but it's not so much doctrine as, as it is personal qualities of those who are followers of Christ. And in particular, I want to talk about two words, courage and faithfulness. Courage and faithfulness. There are places in this world today where it takes a fair amount of courage to live for Jesus. Is that not true? Recently, China has been in the news a lot because of those uh, three UCLA basketball players who shoplifted at several stores in a mall were arrested and facing up to 10 years in prison. I mean, really, really dumb. President Trump intervened on their behalf, speaking to the Chinese president, and a few days later they were released, and they're back home now, suspended from the team. But that, that news captivated much of the country. You know what hasn't made headlines? That same Chinese president, whose picture you see on the screen, is exerting more power in China than anyone since the founder of the Communist Party in China. And that religion, and in particular Christianity, is being consistently suppressed and persecuted in new ways in that country. Recently in one part of China where many of the people are poor, he's had the communist officials actually visit the homes of Christians. This is in an area where about 10% of the population are believers, followers of Christ. And these government officials, these communist officials, and it's always interesting, by the way, when the younger generation thinks socialism and communism is good. They haven't gotten out in the real world very much. So here's these communist socialist officials going into the homes of these Christians and instructing them to remove from all of their walls all displays of Christianity, any paintings of Christ, a cross, Bible verses that have been stitched and hung and framed, anything in the house that would speak of Christianity, of Christ, ordered to take down. And do you know what they're being instructed to place on the walls instead pictures of the Chinese president given them by the Communist Party. Churches are being closed. Steeples are being torn off of churches. Churches are being, the buildings are being confiscated today. More and more restrictions. Recently, a pastor in 
this pastor's family arrested because they broke a, a law in China by, by singing a Christian song in a public park. We hear stories like that and we, we think about people who are living in those kind of places and, and, and we marvel at those who are faithful and those who are willing to, 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 to stand up for Jesus in those places. And we sometimes wonder what would we do if we lived there, right? Can I tell you the truth? It takes some level of courage to live for Jesus anywhere anymore, including Rock Hill. Now, hear me. It does not take any courage to go to church in Rock Hill. It does not take much courage to say, I'm a Christian, I'm spiritual. Go to Books a Million, there's a, there's a religious section, a spiritual section, Christian books. It doesn't take much courage to say, I'm spiritual, I'm religious, I'm a Christian, I go to church. But it does take courage at moments, right, to genuinely be faithful to the call of Christ and to his lordship in our lives in certain moments, certain places, certain circumstances in this city because somebody will laugh at you or think, why do you think you're better than me? You think you're, why are you acting holy? Why are you so stuck up? Why, why, why do you have to be different? Why can't you just be like us? That pressure is real. And the truth is, too many church members in, in our moments, in our place, we, we struggle sometimes to have the courage to be faithful in those moments. So how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a courageous follower of Jesus? Do, do you see yourself as a faithful follower of Jesus, as a, an obedient follower of Jesus, someone who's willing to stand out from the crowd and be different, not because you're odd, <laughs> but because you're living godly and you're doing the right thing? Are, are you willing to be different in those moments when, when everybody just thinks it's okay to do whatever they're doing? If I ask you to, to make a list of words that you think best describe yourself, what would be on the list? Would faithfulness, would faithful be on the list? Would obedient to the will of God be on the list? Would courageous be on the list? There's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure to conform. How many of you remember the old television show, uh, Candid Camera? You know, it's been on different iterations of it for decades. <laughs> remember the, the original with Alan Font? You know, it's, it's, it's funny. One of the uh, episodes years ago, was there, there's an elevator. Okay? And you remember, the, for those of you who don't know it, they would play tricks on people and always have a camera there to catch their reaction, and it was usually pretty funny. Um, so there's this elevator, and a, and a man gets on the elevator, and he did what we do. You walk onto the elevator, and then what do you do? You turn around and face the door, right? That's what he did. <clears throat> but before the door closed, three actors got on the elevator, and they didn't face the door. <clears throat> they stood with their back to the door facing <laughs> the rear of the elevator. And on the camera, you can see this guy. He's puzzled, and he, he he's wondering, what's, you know, what, maybe I. You can tell he's just confused and he's struggling. And then 
a fourth actor gets on the elevator, stands with his back facing the door, and he's looking at the rear of the elevator. What do you think the first man did? He turned and faced the back of the elevator. <laughs> that's, that's the human predicament, isn't it? Now, have any of you as a believer, as a follower of Christ, ever felt that pressure in society? Everybody at work, everybody at the party, everybody at school, everybody in your neighborhood, <clears throat> they're all facing this direction, and you know you're supposed to face the other direction, but man, there's what's wrong with me? <laughs> am, I, am I missing something? Am I weird? Am I, what's wrong with me? What, what do they know that I don't know? Uh, that, 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 that social pressure, that that pressure, right? Have you been there? Have you been there as a disciple, as a follower of Christ? The truth is, every person in this room has been. If anybody says, I've never felt that, uh, we need to have a long conversation because there's something wrong with you. Each and every one of us have felt that at moments in life, right? Right? And I think one of the reasons we struggle with courage is because we remember all the times we turned around and looked the wrong direction. We remember all the times the pressure got to us. And how does that make us feel? Lousy, right? We don't feel worthy. And we repent and we confess and we rededicate. But somehow that just keeps hanging on to us. And um, we sometimes struggle. We, we know our weaknesses. We know our, our, our failures. But can, can I tell you something? You don't have to be perfect in order to be courageous. Write that down. That's good. You don't have to be perfect in order to be courageous. Sometimes we, we remember our failure, we see our imperfections, and we think there's no hope, there's no use, so why try? I can't do it. I can't, I can't. And we have this self-talk going on in our mind all the time. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And, and the more you say I can't, then guess what? The more you won't. We've been, as I mentioned, celebrating the Reformation and talking a lot about uh, Martin Luther. And by the way, if you want to know more, we'll be showing the movie Luther tonight at 5 o'clock in this room. It's not a documentary. It's an actual uh, uh, well-made, high-budget movie that I hope you'll, uh, you'll come and join in watching tonight at 5 o'clock. But Luther was far from perfect. <laughs> now, Luther is he's the person that that God used to initiate this movement we call the Reformation that literally changed human history, not just the church, but society. The seeds of what we call religious liberty were born in his movement. You holding the Bible there in your hand, in your language, was an outgrowth of that movement. It changed the world. But Martin Luther was... He had an ego the size of Mount Rushmore. 
He, he could be temperamental. He could, he could get angry at the drop of a hat. He was argumentative. He could be very kind and loving and cruel. He was far from perfect. Um, he started the Reformation in Germany, and there was another man whose last name was Zwingli that started a similar movement in Switzerland, a neighboring nation. And remember, they're, they're being hounded by the authorities, the, the Holy Roman Empire and the Catholic Church and, and princes and, 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 and people of power and wealth trying to, to execute them, trying to stamp it all out. And so there were some who thought, you two need to get together and combine these movements because it'll, it'll make you stronger. There'll be strength in numbers, have a greater chance of success. Makes sense, doesn't it? So Luther and Zwingli met at a castle in Marburg in Germany. And they, they talked for several days, and they agreed on just about everything. But they disagreed pretty strongly on the Lord's Supper. And so the, the movements didn't never united. But here's the thing. When the meeting was over and they, and they, they couldn't agree, they they. they they just could not bring them. And Zwingli was willing to join the movements even though they disagreed on that issue, but Luther wasn't. And so afterward, Zwingli goes up to Luther and, 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 and calls him brother and wants to shake his hand. Luther refuses to even shake his hand. Now, do you get the picture of what I'm talking about? This man was so single-minded that sometimes he could just be a jerk. Now, courageous, used of God, changed the world, changed the church, but very, very human. And so I say again, you don't have to be perfect in order to be courageous. You know, probably the, the most famous story in Luther's life is after the Pope uh, issued a, a papal bull of excommunication. And when the church excommunicated you, it meant not only were you no longer a member of the church, but you were consigned to hell. You were outside the grace and salvation of God. And secondly, any public authority, any official had authority to arrest and execute you. So it was a big deal. And Luther's courage shows up when he, he went, when, when he received the official document, that papal bull, he throws it into a bonfire in front of a big crowd and burns it. And they bring him to a legislative gathering, the deed of Worms, where he's on trial. And here's this table with all of his writings, all of his books, and after hours of debate and a couple of days of discussion, finally they just ask him, are these yours? Yes, you're willing to recant, to, to, to deny, to, 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 to pull away from all that you've written? And finally, they just, just, they, just, they just ask him point blank, do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors they contain? And standing there in front of the most powerful people in Europe, including the Holy Roman Emperor Charles. Now imagine you're standing in front of the most powerful people on the planet who can execute you with one word. 
And that's when Luther says, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, then kind of parenthetically he adds, because I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. So unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Now, would you call that courageous? Huh? But was he perfect? (laughs) Far from it. And I say again, you don't have to be perfect to be courageous. So what can help us? I mean, Scripture says if you say you have no sin, what? You deceive yourself. You're a liar. We're not perfect. We're not going to be this side of glory. So what are some things that can help us in those moments when when everybody's looking the wrong direction on that elevator and we're looking the right direction, but we're feeling that pressure to turn around and go with the world? We're feeling that pressure to turn around and act like everybody at school and at work and at the party. What can help us to, to continue facing the right way? Even though we're not perfect and we know it and we have our weaknesses and we know it, but what can help us have some courage to be faithful? Well, I, I hesitate to say Jesus is the model because all of us look and say, I could never be like Jesus. I get that. But there's there's one there, there's something in the experience of Jesus and as as he got closer and closer to the cross that I think shed some light on on a practice on an on on an attitude on an, on an approach if you will that can help us find courage. And so I want to look at it and it's in Luke chapter nine it's just one verse verse fifty one and then in a moment we'll look at a couple of verses in, in Hebrews 12. But this verse has always fascinated me. Luke 9, 51. <clears throat> Notice this. When the days were approaching for his ascension. Now this is Jesus. So as it got closer and closer to his ascension, what is his ascension? Going back to heaven, following, following, following the crucifixion and the resurrection. The, the, the suffering of the cross had to come first, right? hasn't been crucified yet when this verse is, is, is when this verse happens so as the days get closer for Jesus to go back to the father to, to return to heaven notice what it says he was determined to go where where now what happened when Jesus got to Jerusalem he was arrested His disciples turned like cowards and ran away, abandoned him. Peter cussed and said, I don't know him. He was spit on. He was beaten with fists. He was beaten with whips. 
He, he suffered the humiliation of, of carrying a cross through a public street to the place of his own execution. Nails were driven through his wrists and feet. A spear thrust into his side on the cross. The sin of humanity, my sin, your sin, everyone's sin was dumped on him and he became sin for us and died in our place and for the first time, first time experienced separation from the Father because he made atonement for our sin and he died and his body was buried in a borrowed grave. All of that happened in Jerusalem. All of that happened before the ascension. See, here's the thing about Jesus, and it's something I want us to learn. He had this habit, if you will, this, this quality, this pattern of looking beyond the immediate to what was next. The immediate for Jesus was Jerusalem. The immediate for Jesus was all the suffering, all the betrayal, all the pain. It's the crucifixion and all that went with it. But the verse says, as the days were approaching for his passion, for his crucifixion, for his suffering, is that what it says? No, as the days were approaching for his what? He had this ability to look beyond the immediate to what was next. And what was next was the ascension, the returning to heaven, the victory, the resurrection. What was next was that as he ascended to heaven, salvation was secured for us and we could be forgiven and we could know him and we could be changed and we could have a new life. He looked beyond the immediate to not only his return to heaven, but in that us. And one day we'll be there with him. He saw the eternal. He saw the greater good. He saw the, the joy, the joy that comes ultimately when we obey God. See, we, we have this habit of what? Walking through life looking down at our feet. Walking through life, looking only at what is immediately in front of us. And it's human. I do it at times. We all do it at times, right? Because the pain's real. And sometimes it's bad. So was his suffering, wasn't it? But somehow he found the ability to look beyond. And it made all the difference. If you've been driving a long time, you know that if you're driving on the highway, whatever you stare at, if you fix your eye on a point out there, your car will eventually drift that direction. Is that not true? Whatever you fixate on shapes your life. 
And if you fixate on the immediate and you can't see beyond, even though the immediate is real and it's demanding and it's tough, but if that's what you fixate on, guess what? Eventually that will shape you. You have to look beyond so that it shapes you. What's beyond what you see on the other side shapes you in the immediate. Do you get that? One last passage, the book of Hebrews chapter 12, just drives this point home in the life of Jesus and how it relates to us. Hebrews 12 verse 1, Therefore, since we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, referring to the Christians that are mentioned in chapter 11 of Hebrews, the saints who have come before us that, that have walked faithfully, that, that have set an example for us, that have endured hardships, that have looked beyond. He said, because we have these witnesses there to encourage us, he says, let us lay aside every encumbrance, those things that weigh you down and hold you back. And the sin which so easily entangles us, those things that get wrapped around our feet and cause us to trip. Let us run. Hard to run when you're carrying a heavy load. Hard to run when your feet are tangled. Let us run. Notice this, he says, with endurance. They don't quit the race that is set before us. We're all moving toward the same place, but the paths are different. My my race isn't exactly your race. Your race isn't exactly my race, but in the big sense, they're the same race. And here's how we do that. Verse 2, fixing our eyes. What do you stare at? What do you look at? What do you focus on? Fixing our eyes. On what? What's the beyond for us? It's Jesus. We all have the immediate. We all have what's right in front of us. What's the beyond for each and every one of us? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Fix our gaze on him. Do that and you'll run toward him. Fix your gaze on what's immediate. That's what you'll run toward. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who, notice this now, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now let me ask you, when Jesus made his way to Jerusalem and saw the cross immediately in front of him and all associated with the cross, was the, do, you, do you think he saw joy in that? So what was the joy? It was the beyond. It it was the results. It was on the other side. He saw beyond here. Who for the joy? The cross wasn't the joy. It was what would be accomplished by God in our lives and in his life through the cross. That was the joy, the joy of obedience. who for the joy set before him endured the cross. See, it doesn't mean it was fun. He endured it. Despising the shame. Think about that. The shame, the, the, the humiliation of crucifixion because that's, that's what happened to criminals. 
And rather than allowing the humiliation of crucifixion and execution as a criminal to make him feel embarrassed, <laughs> he looked at the embarrassment associated with it and just scorned it and said, that's nothing. Because he looked beyond. He, he could see the day when every knee will bow and tongue confess that he's Lord. He could see the day when the angels will come with him back to earth and all of his children raised from the dead and gather with him forever in heaven. He could see that glorious day when we share in his glory. He could see the first Easter when he would be raised from the dead. He, he could see the ascension when he would, he would leave earth and return to the Father in heaven. He could see, he could see beyond who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and now he sat down on the throne. <laughs> Do you get it, church? Do you get it? Now, here's the thing. It's a choice. Whether you keep looking at the door and Christ is the door to heaven, Or turn around like everybody else and look at the rear wall that's a dead end. It's a choice. What you fix your gaze on. We're all going to glance at stuff, right? You ever been driving down the highway and glanced over real quick? We're all going to glance. But it's a choice to bring my eyes back on the road, right? It's a choice to fix my gaze on Christ. It's a choice. It's a choice to stay in prayer. It's a choice to stay in the Word. It's a choice to stay in worship. It's a choice to stay in Sunday school. It's a choice to stay in fellowship and connection with the people of God. It's a choice to keep my, my eyes fixed when I'm going through something immediately that is really, really, really hard. that old Peter? Remember Peter? Was Peter perfect? Huh? He was rambunctious, wasn't he? A little bit like Martin Luther. Peter's the one that cussed and said, I don't know Jesus. I mean, he, he turned around and looked at the wall of the elevator real quick, didn't he? I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Three times. And yet a few weeks later, Peter's arrested for preaching Jesus out in public, threatened by the, 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 the government leaders there in Jerusalem, told and ordered and instructed not to preach anymore, and he's the one that says, we've got to obey God, not men, went out and preached some more. So just because you haven't been courageous in the past does not mean you cannot be courageous in the future. Fix your eyes. Peter had a different view of Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. When, let me wrap it up with this. Here's a, here's a practical suggestion. When you're facing the pressure from society, from individuals to compromise, to turn around and look the wrong way, I want you to do something. I want you to slow down for just a minute, okay? 
for just a minute. And I want you to look to the future and imagine the only two outcomes that are possible. Okay? Because there's only two options when you're feeling that pressure. And I want you to imagine each of them and their outcomes in the future. In the moment you're feeling that pressure. One of those possible outcomes is what? You turn around and look the wrong direction like everybody else. And in your mind, imagine doing that and what will happen if you do. What will it do to your witness? How will you feel? And then the second option. Just to look to the future and imagine. Imagine what it will be like if you choose to keep looking at the door. If you choose to keep looking at Jesus, you choose to keep believing, you choose to keep obeying, you choose to keep moving in the right direction. Just imagine yourself doing that and then ask yourself, what will it be like on the other side if I make that choice? What will it be like down the road if I make that choice? And how will I feel about myself and my relationship with God if I make that decision? And then ask yourself, which outcome are you willing to live with? Which outcome do you prefer? Jesus. See, Jesus looked beyond and he saw the outcome. And because of that, it says he was determined. Determined. See, for a Christian, whenever we're in a hard spot, the best is in front of us, not not behind us. And one of my favorite sayings, it doesn't sound real spiritual, but it's still one of my favorite sayings, this too shall pass because there's something beyond. Ultimately, what's beyond is heaven. But most of the time, there's some good stuff beyond before heaven too, (laughs) right? So don't just get hung up on the immediate, which can be painful. But fix your eyes on Christ and look beyond and find some courage, find some determination. 